30 hours. That's how long Michael Bennett at his Century Post. 30 hours. Maybe just saying out the length of time will make enough of an impression on you. Let's back up a moment and really underline the situation. The Century Posts stand on four rooftops at the four corners of the city. One at the north, one at the south, one at the east, and one at the west. From the Century Post on the rooftop, there's nothing to see but the midnight desert stretching for miles and miles of blank black wasteland. On a clear day beneath the black sun, you feel like you can see all the ways to the very edge of the world. Mac was in the west post. The sentry post was little more than a shack, no wider than five feet and less than that lengthwise. The metal of the shack was old and long corrupted, cancerous seams of rust coursing over its body. When it rained, as it often did at the western post, the water hit the shack with the sound and impact of machine gun pellets. Mac was a big kid, broad-shouldered, so for him, standing up in the sentry post was akin to being buried alive. Every time he so much as twitched, some piece of him came into contact with some part of the shack. It was maddening. And on days when it rained, it could seem to Mac like the walls were caving in, metal wrapping around him like water enclosing for a body that surrendered to its song. Even after he was free of the shack, he would dream of it, dream of drowning in metal and rust while standing upright. When it rained, the rat-a-tat-tat rhythms struck like punches, body blows against the walls of his psyche and his self. And on this particular day, the day we're telling you about, it had been raining. It had been raining for the entire 30 hours. The rain had started almost the exact second that the sentry Mac was relieving had closed the door on him. The rain had not stopped, not once, not for 30 hours. Now, you may be asking yourself why someone would subject themselves to such a torturous diss. And if you are asking that, that's fine. We'll answer the question anyways. What reward is there to be one for service in the city beneath the black sun? A place beyond all currency and monetary forms of payment. The payment is security. The center of the city had been made a fortress, fortified by a man with a scar across his face. His name is McRae. People who do services for McRae get to live in the center. The more services you perform, the longer and more comfortable your stay. The century deal is simplicity itself. For every hour you spent in the shack, you earn a day for you and your family in the center. Mac had bought his family a month of security, or as close to security as you could hope to get in the city beneath the black sun. His personal record was a full 48 hours. His replacements had had to pull him from the post. He'd been dazed, lost down inner labyrinths of the mind, he had screamed at them to let him go, to put him back in. The record supposedly was 60 hours. Neither Mac nor any of the other current sentries knew who it was that had lasted the full 60, but everyone knew a guy who knew a guy who knew the guy who had pulled it off. Mac tried to imagine that. 60 hours. No, it was too much to even fathom. Even 30 hours was pushing his limit. He resolved this next hour would be his last and then he would signal for a replacement. 31 hours, 31 days of safety. His mother would be able to finish her book and start another one. That was how she measured time these days. She was currently reading Huckleberry Finn with Max's little sister, Emma. Emma had loved Tom Sawyer 
on Immaculate slip there's a sequel, she demanded that their mother read it to her. Huckleberry Finn was an altogether different beast than that first book, though. Max Mom may do by replacing the text's most controversial word with Nightman. Nightman Jim. Mac wondered how much this warped the text. What sort of phantom did Emma conjure to fill that description? Did she picture a shrouded figure of shadow bracing themselves on the raft alongside Huck? Mac couldn't fault his mother, though. He does so in diligence, shielding Emma from the harsher corners of entertainment. Three years ago, before the descent, Emma's favorite movie had been that age flick, Gremlins. She just loved to watch those scaled little bastards shred small town USA and blow people up. But right in the middle of the damn film, goddamn Phoebe Cates delivers a monologue with a punchline about Santa Claus not being real. Mac made sure to fast forward through that section every time Emma watched the movie, which is about twice a day, every day, for at least two months. She'd been five then, and Mac had been fifteen. Much had changed in three years. They didn't watch movies anymore. The rain began to fall heavier than it had been. Rat-a-tat-tat. Rat-a-tat-tat. He was cold down to his bones. First thing I'm going to do, he thought, is take a long hot shower. Or no, the first thing I'm going to do is go see Josh. Try and siphon some of the warmth off of him. Or maybe, he thought, maybe I'll see Josh in the hot shower. That would be a good day. Mac drifted down to this thought, half memory and half reverie. He remembered the little smirk Josh had worn that first time. He had the boy knowing exactly what pleasure was about to hit while Mac had been so woefully unprepared. Just that recollection was enough to stave off the cold for a moment. Then a raindrop hit the back of his neck and sank down into his spine kiss of winter against his flesh. Max searched for the source of the drip, but the shack was dark and he could hardly move and there was no obvious hole in sight. So he turned his eyes to the desert and resolved not to let the drip bother him. Drip. 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 Rat-a-tat-tat. Did something move? He pressed close to the opening, wishing he had room to rub the fatigue out of his eyes. It seemed. He double-checked. Triple. Yes. There's something moving out there in the midnight desert. That something moved on at least six legs, but upon closer inspection, it was clear that its hide was littered with what appeared to be vestigial limbs that dangled uselessly. Mac had a sudden mental image of a seventh-grade gym class when Dusty Briggs broke his wrist diving for the other team's flag. Mac remembered gym teacher Mr. Prescott helping Dusty to his feet, the boy's hand flopping nervously in his undamaged hand. The creature's legs ended in hooves, while its head was topped by a wide, thick ram. It stood twenty feet tall, and it was bellowing in pain. That's when Mac saw the real source of trouble. Not the massive monster, but the tiny specks that circled above it. Even as he watched, the specks folded in their outstretched limbs and dropped, fast as bullets, fast as the rain that continued to pound against the shack and the rooftop. Rat-a-tat-tat. Great globs of meat were ripped from the creature's hide. It wailed, it turned, it flung its massive head at the assailants, but the specks danced and dove away. The creature reared up on its hind legs, issuing a defiant trumpet against the attack. 
one speck dart between his legs and sliced upwards, cutting as smoothly as a box cutter sliding through cardboard. Everything that had been inside came outside. The steam rose while rain fell. The speck fell to the ground and began to feast. And as Mac watched, Alfie began to flap, to rise, and to move towards the city. Now he had a choice to make. If he lit the green flare, the worm would be taken up across the city and people would take cover. But he couldn't say for sure whether the specs were even truly aiming for the city, or if they were, if they posed any threat. Possibly they would simply fly right over, or at least they would have, had some jackass not lit a burning green exclamation point against the gloom. What was he supposed to do? He thought of Emma, curled in her blankets, dream drifting down a Mississippi River of blue that only ever existed in illustrations. How many other children lay snuggled in warm spaces, taking the only respite from the cruelties of this world being the black sun that was possible? If he lit the flame, he might be endangering all of them. If he didn't, they might all already be in danger. Rat-a-tat-tat. Max stepped out of the shack, become drenched in a matter of seconds. The specks were closer, more solid now. He thought he could pick out individual pieces of their shape. A claw here, a jagged beak there. They began to drop. Or, his mind, desperate for any to tip in one direction, imagined it saw them begin to drop. His shaking hand struck the flare. Green light burned. Mac held the flare high overhead and waved it. He screamed, too. Not that it would do any good. He could barely hear his own voice against the fury of the storm, but felt good to lose his lungs after so much time in that cramped shack space. He screamed and he waved, and in the distance he could see more lights take up the call and spread deeper into the city. With luck, it'd be only a matter of minutes before the central stronghold was at full prep and the gunners were at their mounts. Luck, however, did not seem to be the offing for Mac that night. He turned from the brightening city just in time to see one of the bird creatures rush towards him, cruel beak open. Voice hoarse, Mac wailed and threw himself to the ground, puddles soaking through his clothes at once and pouring onto his skin. He bolted and scared away, the bird creature flapping just above the rooftop as it approached him. It had molted black and gray feathers, matted by the wind and rain. Thick clumps of feathers were simply gone, the skin of the emptiness glowing and irradiated red. But the worst feature was the head. Naked of feathers, the gray flesh was lined with scars. The eyes had long ago been sewn shut by a clumsy hand. The creature shrieked, and Mac could be held. Behold, the beak filled with rows of crooked yellow teeth, each one twitching and moving on its own, like seaweed twirling on a tide. When Mac screamed this time, it was pure fear. He ran. The creature cut through the air. Talons raked skin. Cold fire coursed down his back. Mac wrenched himself free and tumbled again to the wet rooftop. The flare rolled from his hand. He leapt after it. As he did, he could see out the corner of his eye that the bird creature was building speed for another assault. 
Please God, not this, he thought, his hand groping for the flare. Please God, not this, not this way, please. Rat-a-tat-tat. The flare is hot to the touch as his hand closed around it. An island of warmth and an ocean of chill. He turned, holding that flare aloft like it was Excalibur, or Sting, or the Vorpal Blade, or the fucking Ego Montoya had called the sword he used to slay the six-fingered man. He held that flare aloft like it was God's own fire, where Prometheus had damned himself to gift mankind. The bird creature's face was an inch from his own. Mac buried the flare full in its face drawing his hand back from the flesh as it folded like candle wax. The bird creature gave a last pathetic squawk and then flopped dead on the rooftop. Mac allowed himself a single moment of absolute perfect exhaustion. And then he looked up and saw four more closing in. Rat-a-tat-tat. The larger flock had passed him by. Even as he stood on the rooftop, Matt could see spackles of starlight that he knew to be the muzzle flashes of the city's defenders lighting up the interlopers. McRae's militia held positions down all throughout the city, not just the central keep. They were armed and they were ready. But there was no one at hand to help Mac now. There's just him, the creatures, and the rain. And the black sun even now held court in the sky behind the storm clouds. Mac ran. No thought, no plan, no pain, no mind. Just pure animal panic that like scorching towards the shack. The bird creatures missed him by inches. The ill wind whipped his hair as they passed. Mac slammed the door behind him and braced himself against the walls. They attacked with their claws, with their beaks, with their very bodies and heads, slamming themselves with full force against the shack. Was he screaming? If he screamed without a voice, did still count. Maybe it was because his voice had gone hoarse outside. Maybe the sound was just lost in the apocalypse, crashing and smashing. But Mac's mouth was open, his lungs were empty, but no sound could be heard. A beak punctured the wall just next to his head, drawing a long grit gash across his scalp. A claw ripped through his upper thigh. The corrupted metal gave way to his midsection and dug into his side. The shack warping under the assault, began to contour around Mac's body. How was he supposed to withstand that? He couldn't. With a final jagged cry, he forced his way out into the rain, the cold rain, surrounded at once by the trumping cause of the bird creatures. They left the shack a rumpled ball of useless metal, and they launched upon him. Mac didn't even have the strength to lift his arms in defense as they began to set their claws against his flesh. Rat-a-tat-tat. They pulled at him and poked at him and fought over him. The biggest one bashed the smallest one into stillness. They made a squawking spectacle of itself to beat back the remaining two. Those two released their hold of Mac and he fell face first to the wet and the gravel. The puddle in which he landed felt bottomless. 
if you let go for an instant, he would sink forever. It didn't sound so bad right now. The biggest of the bird creatures walled up and posed over him. It placed one dinosaur talon over his back and paused for one final call of victory. The arrow was silent as it flew. Only when it buried itself in the bird creature's skull and popped on the other side, only then did it register sound. The eyeless face managed a look of surprise, and then it fell heavily to the ground. Mac picked up his head and saw a figure clad in a black leather coat and a red hood march across the rooftop, crossbows slung on their back and sickle blade ready in their right hand. The figure stepped over Mac and stood there, waiting. Mac's eye focused on the ratty old man's sneakers that now rested near his nose. The surviving bird creatures hissed and pawed the ground. One leaned forward and was rewarded with a smack from the sickle. Bleeding, the creature leapt into the air, followed shortly after by the other one. Once both were safely away, the figure in the red hood relaxed and bent to help Mac. He was vaguely aware of his pain and the horror would be with him long after even those gashes and slashes were healed. Months from that night, he would still bolt awake in the middle of the night, and only Josh's gentle touch could soothe him back to sleep. But then, on the rooftop, it all seemed very distant from him, a movie happening to someone else. His voice, when he spoke, seemed to echo from a long way off, Later, he would have no idea why he said what he said. What he said was, Are you the Nightman? From behind the hood, he saw ruby lips part a pale face with a smile. My name is Cassandra, she said. A dozen questions sprang to mind, but he was falling again this time into a warm black from which he had no desire to wake. But wake he did. He awoke in a private hospital in McRae's own building, which was usually reserved for whenever a compatriot of the big man had heart palpitations or problems of that ilk. His mother was there, his sister was there, even Josh was there. It would not have been Mac's preferred method for bringing these houses life together, but the choice was made and moot. He was celebrated as a hero, and the word came down that Gray had decreed that Mac and his loved ones could have a full year in Central Keep for free. Century recruitment doubled. Mac asked anyone and everyone he could about the woman in the black leather coat and the red hood, his savior Cassandra, but received no answer began to wonder if perhaps he'd imagined her and escaped death in some other way. But then he remembered that smile, the deep red offset by the pale of her skin and the dark of the storm. And he would know that no, she was real. And whoever she was, and whatever she did what she did, she had saved him from a terrible death. Maybe it had been his lucky night after all. Not everyone could be so lucky. Some people end up like poor Ernest Fleming, 
and get worse than any human being could ever deserve. But that's another story. Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of Black Sun Dispatches, part of the CinePunks Network. My name is Brian Foley, and I write, produce, and perform the show. Uh, Black Sun Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by the CinePunks Network. Uh, if you didn't like this one, uh, you can still check out CinePunks, Loud Fast Philly, Hard Business, or any of the new shows we have rolling out. Uh, there's a lot of great programs, so like I said, if you don't like this one to your taste, uh, there's probably something that you will like. Uh, CinePunks is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. You can hit them up at xlvacx.com. Uh, or you can be a CinePunk sponsor yourself by supporting the Patreon, which you can find on our website. If you did like this show, uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, if you didn't like this show, that's perfectly fine. Just you know, keep that to yourself and go about your life. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the True Brennan F. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show. Uh, you can also find additional writing by me at synapse.co uh, and my medium page. Black Sun Dispatch's logo was created by Jennifer Rogers. The show is produced using Reaper. And music for this week's show is Winter by E.L. Heath. Uh, we'll be back uh, pretty soon with our third episode called Ernest Fleming Has a Box. Uh, I think it's a really good episode. So I hopefully you'll be joining us then when we release it. Uh, until then, uh, have a good day. Um, good week, you know. Have a good time.